Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we speak with Dr. Jennifer Eaglin, Associate Professor of History and core faculty member at the Sustainability Institute at The Ohio State University. Jennifer is the author of Sweet Fuel, a political and environmental history of Brazilian ethanol, which documents the history and assesses the benefits and costs of the use of sugar-based ethanol in Brazil's vehicle fleet. It's a fascinating story and one that highlights the complexity of this alternative fuel source. Jennifer will help us understand how the industry came to prominence, how it has improved air quality, and how it has damaged water quality, ecosystems, and communities in parts of Brazil. Stay with us. All right, Jennifer Eaglin from The Ohio State University, welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Jennifer, we're going to talk today about the ethanol industry in Brazil, uh, which is a really fascinating topic. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. But we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues or energy issues uh, from the start. Uh, did your interest in these topics develop as a kid or, or later in life? Um, I would say perhaps a little bit of both. Um, I'm originally from Michigan, and, and so as the car producing state in in the United States, I I certainly think that car and energy questions were kind of circulating around me as I was growing up. But I particularly got into questions of ethanol actually when I was working on my master's in international affairs and international economics. And so I took a course on uh, international trade and development and ended up doing this random project actually on corn-based ethanol production in the United States and its impact on farmers in, in Mexico, on, on corn-producing farmers in Mexico, uh, as states like Iowa became net importers of, of corn to accommodate this growing demand for ethanol in the United States. And so, um, so it was a really fascinating project and my professor actually said, well, if you're interested in ethanol, you should also look at Brazil as Brazil's the other largest producer of ethanol in the world. And they actually produce ethanol from sugarcane while we produce ethanol from corn in the United States. And so um, so I ended up kind of redirecting a lot of my my interest towards that. I, I won a fellowship actually to study Brazilian ethanol policy. And uh, during that year, I actually, as I learned more about the industry, I realized there was this this long history of ethanol um, production and consumption in Brazil that was actually very different from the American example. And so that's what really led me to um, pursue my PhD in Latin American history and to write my, my dissertation on the history of the ethanol industry in Brazil. Yeah, that's fascinating. And you dropped a, a, another fascinating nugget in there. Is is it true that Iowa is a net importer of corn? Uh, it became a net importer of corn during the peak years of, um, of a lot of the uh, early corn ethanol incentives in the in the late 2000s, early 2010s. So, I I am not sure if they remain a net importer, but it was really fascinating as they actually redirected um, some of the corn that they were importing toward uh, toward cereal production because a lot of the corn that was already being produced in 
um, in Iowa was being redirected toward ethanol production. So it was a, it was a really fascinating project, and uh, there's so much more to learn on that front as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to a podcast for another day. So, um, so let's talk now about Brazil. Um, as we've told folks, we're going to talk about the Brazilian ethanol industry, uh, but I think it would also be helpful for us to know about Brazil's sugar industry. So, can you give us a little bit of history on how the sugar industry evolved in Brazil? How big it is? How it contributes to the country's economy? And any other relevant uh, sort of foundational points you want us to know? Sure. Um, so, actually, as I noted. Um, Brazil and the United States are the two largest producers of ethanol in the world, um, but Brazil's sugar-based ethanol industry is connected to this large and long history of sugar production in the country. Um, certainly, the, Brazil was a, a major sugar producer since its colonial inception, but today, sugar is one of Brazil's largest agro industries. So um, it, agricultural products that have industrial sized production. Um, Brazil's the world's largest sugar producer presently, and it's also the largest sugar exporter in the world. Um, India is often a close second and sometimes surpasses Brazil. Um, I think the last time that India surpassed Brazil in production was like 2020. So they, they can go back and forth, but Brazil is always up there at the top. Um, and it's it's certainly the largest exporter of sugar-based ethanol. Um, and so Brazil's economy is, is very dependent on large industrial exports. Um, most notably, its largest um, export is soy. Um, and then sugar is the fourth largest export in, in the Brazilian economy. Uh, and so I believe beef is currently right behind sugar as the fifth largest export. And so these are il illustrations of how important uh, these agricultural products are in Brazil's overall economy. And then also how important sugar is as an ethanol producer, also in its energy economy, actually. Yeah. Well, let, let's move to that topic now and talk specifically about the sugar-based ethanol um, industry in Brazil. How did it get its start? Uh, so as I noted, sugar and Brazil have, have long been, been linked. Um, Brazil was the largest sugar producer for centuries, um, really 16th, 17th century largest sugar producer in the world. Um, but by the early 20th century, Brazil's major agricultural export and really leading economic driver was coffee exports and sugar had really fallen out of uh, out of international competition, particularly as um, countries within the Caribbean really increased international competition in sugar exports. And so as the sugar industry was struggling, uh, you still had these major, uh, very influential landowners and sugar producers that increasingly look to the government for for economic support, particularly um, with the onset of the Great Depression and the when international agricultural markets, uh, export markets really dried up. And so as they dried up, sugar producers started looking to the government to say, hey, we need some kind of help. We're overproducing sugar. We don't have enough. Uh, we, we can't compete on the international market. And so actually ethanol or ethyl alcohol is actually the technical term can be distilled from any agricultural starchy product, um, be it corn in the United States, sugar 
in Brazil, um, actually in Germany, um, they've produced uh, ethanol from, from potatoes and in France from, uh, from grapes. Uh, and so these, the, the technology to produce ethanol and to use ethanol as a fuel has basically been around as long as the internal combustion engine has. And uh, Henry Ford and Thomas Edison were actually early supporters of, of using ethanol as a fuel option. Uh, for a country like Brazil um, that really did not find large, uh, large oil reserves until really the 21st century, um, as oil became an increasingly important part of economic growth and development in the, uh, in the early mid 20th century, then um, investing in, uh, in ethanol as a, a fuel alternative to petroleum became increasingly appealing. And, and, this, and Brazil was not the only country to do that. So I also mentioned Germany and France, both countries that did not have very large oil reserves that also invested in, um, in ethanol development in the early 20th century. Um, but in the case of Brazil, state-led research uh, proved that you could basically, they could mix uh, ethanol uh, up to 20, 25% with petroleum-based gasoline um, without having to make adaptations to traditional uh, petroleum-fueled engines that uh, in cars. And so this became the foundation for the government to then implement a 5% mandated mixture of ethanol in the national fuel supply in the 1930s in response to demands by the sugar producers that I noted earlier that were really looking for government support for over the overproduction of sugar that they were they were struggling with in this time frame. So so in the 1930s you see this this mixing of sugar and ethanol policy where uh, where these industries really the creation of the ethanol industry was to help support the, the sugar industry. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Let's jump ahead a few decades to another really important policy moment, which is 1975, uh, the year in which uh, Brazil enacted the National Ethanol Program. Can you tell us about the National Ethanol Program, sort of how it led to even further integration of ethanol into Brazil's transportation system? Yeah, so ethanol um, was this this five percent mixture of ethanol in the national fuel supply remains in place until the 1970s, um, when the international oil prices uh, are going to dramatically increase um, with what is somewhat um, generally known as as the oil shocks or the oil embargo, when uh, U.S. interests are going to in in Middle Eastern politics are going to lead to the quadrupling of international oil prices by the beginning of 1974. And so for a country like Brazil, who still relied on foreign oil heavily for their energy needs, actually they, they relied on foreign oil for over 75% of all of their um, oil consumption was, was, on, uh, was from oil imports. Uh, this has a huge economic impact or potential economic impact on Brazil's, um, on their budget. And so in response, the military government, a, a dictatorship was set up in 1964 um, and the military government in place at the time 
um, began or implemented this national ethanol program called ProAlcal or the Programa Nacional de Alcohol, which is the national ethanol program in Portuguese. Um, they implemented this program in 1975. And, uh, and the initial goal was to expand the ethanol mixture from the 5% mandated mixture that I mentioned already um, to a 20% mandated mixture in the national fuel supply. Uh, and so they're going to put together a, a, a bevy of incentives basically to, um, and subsidies to, in, to help push this expansion of ethanol production. Um, and so they're going to put incentives on the production of sugar, on uh, subsidizing the price of, uh, of ethanol, subsidizing incentives for new distilleries, subsidies for, for every step of this production chain. And this is successfully going to expand production from right before the beginning of the program, they were producing about half a billion liters of ethanol per year. And by 1979, they were producing 3 billion liters of ethanol per year. Um, but at the same time, in 1979, you have another oil shock. Oil prices are going to double again. Um, and actually in this time frame, the Brazilian government had also been subsidizing and funding research to develop a domestically fueled uh, ethanol engine that ran exclusively on ethanol. So you no longer, so they make the adaptations that I mentioned earlier, you had to make adaptations if you're going to mix ethanol be above this 25% threshold. And so they, they developed this, this engine that can run exclusively on ethanol. Um, and so they launched commercial vehicles uh, in the national market in 1979. Uh, and by 1985, over 95% of all new cars on the road ran exclusively on ethanol. Um, and to accommodate this, this increased demand, by 1985, they were producing over 10 billion liters of ethanol per year. Wow. So really rapid growth in demand for for that product. Let's talk now about some of the consequences of that ramp up in demand. I imagine many of our listeners are wondering about what some of the domestic environmental consequences were for growing uh, so much ethanol and using it for transportation. So can you tell us a little bit about what the evidence tells us about how that ethanol, the, the ethanol used and produced in Brazil, compares with petroleum-based fuels like gasoline in terms of greenhouse gas emissions over their life cycle? Sure. So in comparison, um, I would say, first and foremost, actually in the 1980s, when uh, when ethanol cars began to dominate the roads in Brazil, researchers in Brazil began studying what were the impacts of uh, ethanol fuel cars on the road, um, on air quality. And what they actually found was that ethanol cars released 65% less carbon monoxide, uh, almost 70% less hydrocarbons, and about 13% less nitrogen oxide than gasoline-fueled cars. And so this became the foundation of, of increased government promotion and, and industry promotion of ethanol as a, a, a green fuel, as this environmentally beneficial option, right? In the broader life cycle footprint of ethanol compared to petroleum-based fuels, um, Brazilian ethanol is about five times more efficient than corn-based ethanol. Um, it burns faster than gasoline. Um, so if you were driving a, a ethanol fueled car, you're going to have to fill up your car more often than you're going to fill up a gasoline fueled car. 
But still, even with that fact, the overall estimates say sugar ethanol is about 40 to 60% less greenhouse gas emissions than petroleum. So, uh, so these things bode well, right? But these aren't the only environmental costs that come along with, uh, with producing ethanol. And this is a lot of what my, my book kind of explores. And so uh, in addition to some of these benefits, right, of uh, lower greenhouse gas emissions, what also came along with this this rapid expansion of sugarcane to produce rapidly expand ethanol production was um, massive land change and deforestation. So the main region that I was studying um, that that really produced the largest amount of uh, of ethanol, sugar and ethanol in in this um, proalkyl era, um, really also accounted for the largest amount of primary deforestation of a of of a forest region, not the Amazon that we're all most familiar with, but actually in the south, the this Atlantic forest, um, in this time frame between 1964 and 1985. Um, in addition, this massive expansion of sugar um, uh, production also pushed the production of other agricultural goods into other areas, which also accounts for increased land change costs. Um, so then in addition to that, um, something that's often very little addressed is the water pollution that came along with massive ethanol production. And so basically in the distillation of ethanol, so when you're distilling ethanol um, into sugar in, in this process to produce ethanol, um, you are also going to produce a byproduct called vinos, and it's this liquidy, acidic, super smelly, almost sludge-like kind of product that's made of um, about 90% water and 7-8% organic materials like potassium, calcium, nitrogen, and phosphorus. And so um, for most of the industry's history, as they produced this liquidy byproduct, they dumped it in the waters around the uh, sugar-producing plants. And so these, as we are increasingly familiar, when you dump large amounts of organic material in waterways, this caused algae blooms and that would suck up all of the oxygen and um, and led to all of these public health issues, particularly actually um, you're going to to see the deterioration of drinking water quality, um, expansion of malaria and, and other um, kind of insect spreading um, diseases. And so these were some of the things that came along with the expansion of ethanol. And, and the expanded consumption of ethanol that are often somewhat uh, disaggregated from discussions of the air quality benefits that came along with it. Right. That's fascinating. So, um, I, I mean, it makes me think a little bit of an analogy to the United States, right, where there were corn production is heavily subsidized and that leads to expansion of uh, farmland to grow crops and those crops are fertilized with fertilizer and the fertilizer runs off into rivers and the rivers uh, with so much organic material you know deteriorate in their in their water quality and they have significant impacts for ecosystems and and potentially for public health as well you were talking about the refining of the the ethanol I'm wondering if you saw some of those same effects that we have experienced here in the US around the actual uh, cropland itself. 
Yes. Well, one of the interesting things is, um, so because this byproduct Venas um, has all of these organic materials in it, um, they created what were called lakes of sacrifice, where they would um, basically create these pits and put all of this product into these pits. And so you had all of this uh, kind of public outrage around deteriorating water quality, um, the smell, the, the, uh, all of these other problems. And so um, actually researchers um, at a, this agricultural institute in Sao Paulo uh, eventually found that you could repurpose Venas, dehydrate it, uh, and you could repurpose it as a um, fertilizer alternative. And so this is part of a remarketing of Venas as not necessarily this product of mass destruction, but rather um, as a potential benefit for, for agricultural um, production. But a lot of the problems became getting people to actually comply with it. It's expensive to, to store, it's expensive to repurpose. Um, and so these are things that have certainly improved the with increased government oversight, it has improved the environmental footprint of the industry and of sugar production in general, but it's certainly something that has to be um, monitored uh, for compliance. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good segue to the maybe the last question I wanted to ask you before we go to our top of the stack segment, which um, is about kind of lessons from Brazil that uh, that other countries can take going forward. Uh, as you probably know, you know, if you look at scenarios of deep decarbonization in the future, you know, most of them involve increased use and some of them involve very dramatically increased use of biofuels and, and bioenergy, uh, often paired with carbon capture and sometimes not. Um, these scenarios are very controversial. There's a lot of argument about, uh, you know, the use of biofuels and bioenergy, uh, in part because of the environmental consequences that we've been talking about today. What are some of the lessons that the Brazil experience offers for other countries uh, as they think about whether and to what extent to expand their use of biofuels and bioenergy? I returned to two main lessons. Um, one, the fact that Brazil was able to um, integrate ethanol into its energy infrastructure um, and in the 1980s rapidly transform their transportation uh, fuel usage toward ethanol is an inspiration and it's a reminder that energy transitions are possible. Um, and I think that's one of the key things that I, I like to take away from this Brazilian example. But it's also worth noting that by the 1990s, a lot of these environmental issues, uh, including droughts, actually imperiled um, the ability to produce enough ethanol to, to supply users. Users then transition back to uh, gasoline-fueled cars. Um, and has since um, switched to flex fuel vehicles that dominate the Brazilian roads today. And so I, I would like to say that energy transitions are possible, but the other thing I, I take away from the Brazilian example is that alternative energies also have environmental costs. And I think we, we like to think that if we can transition away from, uh, from petroleum-based fuels, we're transitioning toward something that is 
we've, we've solved the problem. And I think when we talk about this big picture of here are the things, the good things that came along with the ethanol industry in Brazil, but here are some of the other problems that were also part of this industry's development. Uh, I think it highlights that, that alternative energies are not a single uh, catch-all solution, but rather part of what we hope is a more dynamic um, and diverse solution to our energy crises. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And it's so relevant uh, for, you know, all types of energy sources, right? I mean, whether we're talking about uh, solar and wind or nuclear, you know, the the environmental consequences of the life cycle of those technologies are, you know, in many ways, far superior, far preferential to oil and gas or coal, but that doesn't mean that they are without impacts uh, or do not warrant sort of scrutiny. Well, Jennifer, uh, it's been a fascinating discussion. Uh, I've learned a ton, as I'm sure our listeners have as well. And now I'd like to ask you uh, the same question we ask all of our guests at the end of each episode, which is to recommend something that's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. It can be something you read or you watched or you heard or really anything that you think is cool uh, and that you think our listeners would enjoy. I love this question. And I guess I would, I have a couple of things on the top of the stack of any good historian probably is reading many books at once. Um, so actually my new research focuses on nuclear energy development and water policy in Brazil. And so um, I've been reading some classics around those issues that your, your listeners might also be interested in. So Richard White's Organic Machine is about the Columbia River, hydroelectricity, water, and, and nuclear energy in, in, in the West. And then Mark Reisner's Cadillac Desert also is about water policy and development in the American West that I, I are books that I've, they were written in the eighties, but I come back to them regularly and they're incredibly insightful for the issues that we're facing today. And then for those of us interested in Brazil, I'm actually currently reading this book before the flood, which talks about the Itaipu dam in Brazil, which was until very recently, the largest dam in the world until the uh, Three Gorges uh, Dam came online in China. And so I'm reading about the kind of social and political impact of the um, the building of the Itaipu Dam, which I think fits into the, the same themes of um, alternative energies and, and infrastructure, um, large scale infrastructure building. So, um, so yeah. Those are those are my suggestions. Those are the top of my top of my pile. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I'm actually going to build on your recommendations with with one of my own because it's so relevant. And it is also at, literally at the top of my stack. Uh, it's a book um, that I'm about halfway through called Damned Indians, D-A-M-M-E-D, Indians. And um, it's a history of the Pick Sloan plan in the United States, which was uh, a plan developed by the Army Corps of Engineers and the Bureau of Reclamation to build a series of dams on the Missouri River and its tributaries. And the book is all about how the construction of those dams affected Native American tribes that lived along the river. It, it actually displaced you know, thousands of Native Americans, uh, flooded much of their best cropland, and had you know really destructive consequences for numerous tribes. And this happened in the 50s and 60s and 70s here in the United States. And I imagine there's some overlap with the, uh, the, the books you're reading as well. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. I'll, I, you have added to my list now, so thank you. I'll, I'll have to check it out. Yes, and you'll have to get it at a library. I tried to get it on Amazon, and it was like $2,000. <laughs> one of those old <laughs> academic books that's out of print, and you can only find in old dusty libraries. So um, Those are the good ones, it. right? Those are yeah. the good ones. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. All right. Well, Jennifer Eaglin from The Ohio State University, thank you so much for coming on to Resources Radio today. It's been a fascinating discussion. Awesome. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.